Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. And the amount of effort to acquire one, one home is almost similar to acquiring a 100-unit building. I know it, it sounds unrealistic right now um, because it did to me, but it's actually true. The amount of loan, prod, loan paperwork I had to submit to buy one single-family home to versus the effort I have to buy to close one 100-plus unit, uh, I feel like it's less painful. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors, and welcome to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, I've got a guest. He's a good friend of mine, Socket Jane. Socket has done a number of different things. Currently, though, he is the CEO of Impact Wealth Builders, and he's focused on building out a portfolio of B and C class multifamily apartments. Um, in addition to that, Socket has served in operational leadership roles at Airbnb. He's a best-selling author. And when he's not working, he has a wife and two daughters that I'm sure take up a ton of his time. So Socket, thank you so much uh, with all that you're doing and how busy you are to, that you could be here today to join us. Hey, thank uh, Ken. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be on the show. Awesome. Well, let's let's start at the top, like we always do. Tell us a little bit more about who you are and how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, let's take a little bit of uh, back journey. Uh, so, if my accent didn't give away or my name didn't give away, I grew up in India and uh, moved here a while back, man, about 22 years ago. So, I've spent a good part of my life here now, and this is home. And uh, being from India, the reason I tell that story is being from India, real estate is embedded in our blood. Right, because all everything in India, at least when I was growing up, was all about hard assets, gold, silver, real assets, things that you can touch and feel. So as soon as I came into the country, I essentially started buying real estate left and right. Um, however, it wasn't until 2016 when I got intelligent about buying it. Before we were only buying for appreciation, and they played a very big role in helping us grow our net worth. But in 2016, I got laid off, and um, that's one you know. For me, I've gone to the best in best engineering school back in India, IIT. I got my MBA from Columbia. I was a management consultant, you know, working with a Fortune 500. Everything was to the script. You mm -hmm. can literally read a script and you're like, this person has a perfect career yep. uh, and a perfect life. But of course, it was very fragile and I didn't necessarily pay attention to that. Or I had a, I had a blind spot. 
that's really the time where I started looking into cash flow rather than net yeah. worth, right? Kind of like how many days in my life can I survive with like in passive investments that I have versus do I have a 5 million in bank or $10 million or hundred million, whatever that number ends up being for somebody, right? So we essentially, we essentially started trading our appreciated assets and thankfully they were all appreciated fairly well to now cash flowing assets, right? Uh, cash, when I say cash flow, essentially cash flow positive after all the expenses. Um, and that's when the bug, uh, bug caught me kind of like, you know, this is, this is easy and this is possible. I just never thought about it. Now that doesn't mean it's, that doesn't mean it's simple. It's easy. Um, that means you can, you can have some consistency, consistency around it. And when I got hired at Airbnb, I knew that at some point company is going to go public. And by that time, I had realized the advantage of tax, the tax advantages that an asset like um, real estate can offer you uh, and also to offset, not just to offset your passive income, but also to offset your active income. So we kind of rearranged our entire life around it. And long behold, Airbnb did go public. And I was ready this time with my tax saving mechanism using real estate. And then we started moving into more of multifamily because you know with the scale that we needed to have our single families it would not have, it would have taken me years. And the amount of effort to acquire one, one home is almost similar to acquiring a hundred unit building. I know it, it sounds unrealistic right now uh, because it did to me, but it's actually true. The amount of loan, pro, loan paperwork I had to submit to buy one single family home to versus the effort I have to buy to close 100, 100 plus unit, uh, I feel like it's less painful. Yeah, that's absolutely right. right? I mean, they're, they're, you're given way more personal information to buy that single family home than you, you are to buy that, that commercial asset. And you're taking a lot more risk, right? Because everything is recourse loan, which essentially means you're personally signing on every single thing. So if you were not being able to pay a loan, they can come after everything you have. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to loop back to something that you said. Mm -hmm. You mentioned this idea of trading your appreciating assets for cash flowing assets. Right. What type of assets were you in that you were calling appreciating assets? And then what were you trading those out for, for as cash flowing assets? So both. So, um, so I said both, uh, both types, multiple types of assets, okay. uh, stocks, stocks, right? Because we were, we were invested heavily in stocks as well. So we're like, you know what, we started, we started taking that money out and redeploying that into cash flowing real estate. Also the condos, we had condos, we had, down homes, we had single family homes. They were all with the intention of in 10 years, they're going to give us a lot of money, but not necessarily thinking about how we're going to cover for it. Mm -hmm. So while we were holding, they were essentially a liability, not an asset. Yeah. So we were not trying liabilities. Thankfully, those liabilities were appreciated a lot. So we, we were able to cash out on that. But those liabilities, we traded for assets. We were still in the single family realm which was yep. townhome condos. Yep. We never went above um, like a duplex. Duplex gotcha. was the best we did uh, in terms of those assets. And the one thing we did differently was at the time, uh, pre-2016, it was predominantly places where I would live for more than six months. If I'm going to stay somewhere for more than six months, I'll just buy a house, mm -hmm. an investment property somewhere or somewhere around there. So as you moved around, you were buying houses. You were buying houses across the, across the state. Yeah. But what happened was I was self-managing all of them because I had not under, I, I didn't even, I didn't trust anybody else to manage the property better than me. Now that was a fallacy. Uh, I was proven wrong very quickly, but I was also treating them my time, right? I was constantly in the phone call, getting repairs done. 
but I felt it was fine. That's the only way to do it. But in 2016, when the layoff happened, that's really when I started thinking about how are people doing differently than me? And I started thinking about live where you want to live, but invest where it makes sense. So we started going outside of the horizon. We decided looking at the markets, which made sense. We had bucketed the markets into highly appreciating, you know, kind of like the linear markets, the Midwest, and sort of in between the hybrid markets. And we started diversifying within those portfolios. We were still buying and appreciating markets, but not if there was going to be a negative cash flow. Uh, and everything was going to be managed by a third-party management because for me, leveraging my time became very important because I wanted to focus on scale rather than focusing on being in the business and doing everything myself. Yeah. Well, I think, so what's really interesting that I'm taking away is as you're, I'm hearing kind of your story as you're evolving as an investor and you did a couple of things, you know, one, so in 2016, you get that punch in the gut, laid mm -hmm. off, flips your mindset to say, appreciation is great, but it's kind of like, it's the same thing with net worth, right? You could have all the net worth in the world, but if you can't pay your bills today, what, what does it all matter? Completely. Right. So your mindset shifted and said, well, wow, like I I'm creating this, this high net worth, this wealth for the future, but, but today, where's my cash flow today? Right. And so you, mm -hmm. so then you, you recognize you got to create a balance there. So that's like one level up. Right. And then right. you said, well, what we're doing is not scalable. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you switch from single to multi, like leveling up your level of sophistication again, because right. then you can scale and there's all the economies and benefits that come with that. Mm -hmm. Right. But for then your mindset of management, right. Where this idea of I'm going to manage it all myself, again, not oh, scalable, right. not realistic. You're mm -hmm. able to give some control, then get a professional manager in there, which again, allows you to scale and allows you to just quit trading your time. So you're leveling up right. again. And then the other thing I heard was, you're not buying assets that aren't cash flowing, right? So meaning you were buying assets that would, while appreciating, you were having to supplement, pay the mortgage, correct? right? right. But you're now only buying assets that are self-sustaining. So now you have this portfolio of scalable assets, hard assets that are being managed by somebody else. And this mm -hmm. portfolio is also self-sustaining. In that not Pretty only is it, is it paying its own mortgage and its own expenses, it's probably kicking off cash flow to you too and, and then supplementing your lifestyle. So there's like all yeah. these ways as you went through that journey, like four ways I just called out where you're like leveling up the type of investing that you're doing and the sophistication uh, to where you grew in that time. And I think I think you said it, you said it exactly right in a much better way than I would have. Kind of like, you know what, you're basically every time you do something, you reach a ceiling mm -hmm. and you have to break off of that ceiling. Yeah. Now it's a choice that you personally can make. You want to be com stay comfortable with that ceiling because of the limited beliefs you may have. Yeah. Or you watch somebody like you, Kent, who has been doing it, uh, who has been several years ahead of me. Like, you know, what is Ken doing differently? Let me go learn from Ken and come back and either partner with him or copy him. Yeah. And Ken has no IP on this thing because <laughs> he's not the only one doing it, right? Yeah. There's so many other successful people. Yeah. Who we're basically just replicating what has worked for someone else. This is the beauty of real estate. What I always tell is I am not inventing another Google, another Amazon, another Yahoo, another Airbnb, right? That's right. not our goal. Our goal is to do what makes sense right. in the best risk a worse way we can. That's right. right? Not we, There's going to be some amount of risk because of the nature of the business. That's right. But we're not saying that most of the Airbnbs or wannabe Airbnbs have failed. Yeah. What we're saying is we're going to do the most boring thing in life, which is, buying an apartment building. 
And uh, we'll just do what makes sense and rinse and repeat, keep repeating it. And I think that's so important. Yeah, I think that's so important for people to understand because we we talk a lot about focusing on risk-adjusted return, right? And to me, you think about the risk-adjusted return on multifamily because you said we're not reinventing the wheel. We're not doing anything crazy. We're doing about the most vanilla, like white bread thing you can do is you're buying cash real estate that's already cash flowing. And then many times has been cash flowing for 30 or 40 years already. And you're going to help it make a little bit more money, right? But you're not over leveraging. You're not taking on the, all, all this risk, right? So the risk adjusted return is strong. Conversely, you compare that against like, like you said, maybe a startup, right? The next Airbnb, the next Google, the next whoever, right? There's a chance that that goes a million X, but the chance that that goes to zero is is like 99.999%, right? And so again, it may on paper look like a higher potential return, but when you factor in the risk, and when I say when I say risk, I mean like what's the probability that return is actually realized, right? It's a much different equation. And so like that's how I, I think about these things. It's like, what's the likelihood I'm gonna get the return that I'm being told I'm gonna get? You know, and to me, that's that risk that I try to judge. And I think the key word that I would say is, I think you used the word, uh, interestingly enough, the word likelihood, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's no guarantees anywhere. What we're basically saying is, where is the probability of it not achieving falls? Right. If it's if it's low, then you kind of compare that. Now, with stock market, yes, over the last several years, it has only gone up. Mm-hmm. And nobody would have expected the stock market to go down if you asked two years ago, like, no, stock market only goes up. Um, but we have seen that, like you have seen it, I've seen it, 2008s, the 2000s, where whatever goes up will come down, right? But you just got to make sure that are you able to sustain the downtrend, downward trend? And that's the beauty of cash flowing assets, like a real estate, like a multifamily, where you just hold it long enough, right? The worst case is you just hold it long enough, but there's only the only way you can hold it long enough is because it's paying by, it's paying for itself through the yeah. cash flow that's being generated. And if you're yeah. able to hold it long enough, it's going to come back. It's a cycle, right? We all that's know. right. And I'm really appreciate, I mean, you're a smart guy, Sack, and I'm really appreciating this conversation because is if you're thinking about it the right way, you think about, okay, you know, the stock market, you've got to be able to hold on for decades, right? Because mm-hmm. like look from 2000 to 2010, returns on the stock market, it's like a big right. donut, right? right? And then you look at 10 to 20, Things were fantastic, insane, right? Yeah. But you got to look at the, you got to be able to hold on like for this decade. Mm-hmm. And so if you're diversified well and you have a cash producing asset, well, when is the time to buy when prices are low, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's, there's going to be, I don't know if we're at the bottom of the stock market yet, probably not, but we're, we're way the hell down there. And like, you know, we're probably getting close. If you've got assets over here that even in a downturn are producing cash flow, then you can mm-hmm. deploy that to buy deals across other asset classes, like then you've yeah. got this virtuous cycle, right? But if everything is in the stock market and it's all down, mm-hmm. then when the buying opportunities are there, well, you're over here licking your wounds and you have no you have no cash to take advantage of any of that, right? Because everything's down. It's like, that's where a lot of people are. I'm, I'm sure you have heard the term, you have, you have heard the phrases from your investors that, oh, um, real estate is so illiquid, Yeah. right? Um, so, and I always tell my investors, you're right. When have you taken the money out of stock market when the stock market was high? Ever. Right, right. Ever. 
Yeah. Um, you, whenever you have a need in your life to take the money out, the stock market is down. Yeah. And then you don't want to take <laughs> the money out anyways. So it's actually very illiquid if you think about it. That's right. Uh, because it'll never be, it'll never serve the purpose that you want it to serve uh, because you'll never be able to time it. That's one. The second is because it's a liquid real estate, it actually takes the emotions out of the investing, right? Mm -hmm. And thirdly, if you're actually partnering with syndicators who are professional investors, they're not, they're not doing it because as a part-time job, this is their, this is what they do full time. Yeah. You're basically asking them to make an objective decisions on the entire investor community behalf, not just your one, not just one person's emotion. Right. One person's emotion doesn't govern that. Right. I mean, they're fiduciary responsible to make sure they make the wise investment decision. So they can't just make a decision because, oh, market is crapping out and there's a lot of fear in the market. Let's go sell. Yeah. Right. So that yep. illiquidity, which I don't agree it's a liquid. Yes, your money is. You commit your money. You're committing to stay, committing the money to stay there for a longer duration. Yeah, uh, you can't take it out. It actually works in your favor. Yeah, right? I mean, I I think in some ways it's forced savings. I, right? I would agree. I mean, if I you have, you don't. <laughs> you put this money into a smart asset, then you can't touch it for five years. It yeah. avo you avoid that emotional, the midlife crisis, right? Go going right. to get in the red Corvette or the boat right. or like the right. whatever and else you know, is going to sit in your driveway. Us, <laughs> all of us know people who have done that. Oh so yeah, it's not, 100%. It's, not, it's not like it's not been done. It has oh, been done. Happens all the time. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna go buy a jet. Perfect. Let's go do it. I got a friend that um, just got a new boat. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, it happens a lot, right? You always want to be the friend. You always want to have a friend with a boat, right? You never want to have, have a boat. friend who has who has lots of liabilities that you can enjoy. That's right. But you don't want to be the one who has those liabilities. That's right. That's you want right. to have your assets pay for your liabilities, <laughs> but not the liabilities pay for your own liabilities. Yeah. You just let's chip it for gas. Yes, agree. <laughs> gas is okay. I mean, it's it's going up in price, but it's okay. You're right. That's you know, right. Another thing I hear all the time is uh, can is all about, you know, um, one thing that people don't put into consideration with stock market is that uh, most, depending upon how you're investing in the stock market, let's talk about passive investing, mm -hmm. index fund, or or some sort of an ETF, right? All of these have some sort of inbuilt fees into it. Some mm -hmm. exposed, some not exposed, right? No one's looking at that. And that's on a that's on a yearly basis or quarterly basis. Right. That's not that's not accounted for. And what's not accounted for is stocks are not an inflation hedge. Now, some could argue when inflation increases, the company's prices are also going to increase. Yes, they will. However, most of them are not the mundane day-to-day -day necessity needs, right? They are right. a lot of the companies are selling discretionary products. Right. So yes, Apple iPhone is necessary when everyone's got the money. But people are not going to trade up on their Apple iPhones if the market is tanking and they don't have jobs. That's They're right. going to live with their old phone for a longer time till the time they can. Right. That's right. Amazon, yes, they're buying everything else right now, but there may come a point where people don't have jobs. They may make a trip to Walmart, which essentially is cheaper than Amazon. Right. That there's there's ways the inflation will will affect the businesses. Mm -hmm. When you now look at the uh, on the flip side of real estate, everyone needs a house to live. Right. Housing is Simple. not discretionary. Now, they may not live in a building you own. They may want to live in a different building because of whatever criteria they may have, but there's somebody else who would want to live into your building. Right? Yeah. It's it's always serviceable. You may have to reduce the prices a little bit, but you'll never keep your building 100% vacant. Yeah. Uh, there's always somebody who would want to live there, right? And that actually helps you, helps us to create value even during the downturn even during the high inflationary time, 
this is always going to work in your favor. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should just sell everything in stock market. Well, I may say that on a different call, but on the podcast, I'll never say that. Learn how to diversify, right? I think you and I were talking about just yeah. before the call as well, before we went on air, as in diversification is important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're not going to 10x your money by buying a Tesla, but you're also not 0xing your money by buying a company that may completely disappear. You know, right. several startups have lost money. They've gone down. Yeah, the stock market has only gone 30, 40% down, but several startups have gone down. Their their, their stock valuation has gone down almost 90%. Yeah. So if you are holding those stocks, which a lot of my friends own because they work there, they're out of shoes. They're basically, the whole plan for retirement has changed. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and that's an impact that you just don't want to have to. Yeah. That's why and you don't put all the eggs up, in one basket. You're, you're all yeah. good, right? Everything yeah. is hunky-dory. And that's what the challenge is. That's the time where you want to deploy your capital differently because that's, that's the right. only time you can make a sensible decision. That's right. Uh, when when market's crashing, you're going to work out of fear and fear stresses yeah. you out. And then stress is a lot of confusion and a confused a mind decision. cannot make a good decision. Yeah. No, I think that's that's so wise, Saka. I appreciate your insights there. I think that's 100% true. And that is the message at the end of the day. It's like, just be diversified. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how you protect what you have, right? Is right. By, by being diversified. And so, and, and then there's a spot. I truly believe there's a spot for real estate in everybody's portfolio. You can decide your allocation, but there's a spot for everyone. And you know, one thing I'll add to that, Ken, just one thing I would add to that is I think it's important to know when you're gambling and when you're investing. Yeah, Um, what do you mean? Like a very good friend who is all in stock market and um, he and I have been talking a lot. We have now shifted him into real estate, Um, but the way he's looking at the investment is how can I multiply my money faster? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, without necessarily looking at the risk profiles. So yeah. his first deal is looking into a major value add where the entire property is going to be gutted internally uh, from the from the inside. Yeah, a lot of has risk. a three-year turnaround cycle. And um, now, of course, once it all gets done, the cash flow looks good um, because there was no cash flow to begin with. Right. He's like, oh, the cash on cash on that property is about 11%. I'm like, yeah, it is. A, it's going to take you three years to get there, but you need to look at the IRR. You need to look at the time value of the money and the amount of risk you're taking on that. Are you better off looking at another investment that has a lower risk and maybe slightly lower reward? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about that deal, right, is the cash on cash may average to 11%, but really it's zero. And then over here, it's like 25 in like three years, right? So it's right. There's a whole period where you're not making anything. And a lot can go wrong in that three years. Right. A lot can go wrong. I mean, construction deals are complicated. And if you're not partnering with somebody who knows what they're doing, you may lose your share. And that's why it's very important, like people like yourselves who actually know what they're doing. Yeah. But I I like the point about the gambling, because if you're not taking risk into account, then that's really what you're doing. You're just chasing that the highest shiny return. And it's kind of funny, right? Because that's exactly what they did in stock market. The whole... The whole thinking is coming back to the real estate market as well. Yeah. So they're really not diversifying. They're just picking a different asset class to do exactly what they were doing different, uh, yeah. before. Interesting. And I think at some point I'm like, you know what? I I can only tell you. <laughs> I can't force you, right? Yeah. Um, you can tell so him the stove is sense. hot. You can't make him not touch it. You can't manage, make him not touch it. Yes. <laughs> and it, I'm sure I did the same when I was starting out, right? So it's not a knock on anybody. It's just that. When we're looking at it, reflecting back makes a lot of sense. 
And when I reflect back, I'm like, you know what? This is why we chose to do real estate. Otherwise, we could have stayed in stock market. Yeah. No, I think that's great perspective. Great perspective. So as we switch gears a little bit, uh, while I have you here, you've you've been in real estate a long time. You're obviously a savvy investor. You're very analytical. I want to hear from you with what's going on in the market right now. Where are you looking? You know, and what are you looking yeah. for when you look for deals? Yeah, I think the biggest turmoil that's happening in the market right now is the capital markets, right? And it's not it's not it's not something that's hidden from everyone. Um, and capital markets for the un uninitiated, all it means is how much, what's the interest rate for the loan? That's, that's, that's a less sophisticated way of saying what I just said. So the capital market's in turmoil, which essentially means we don't know where the debt is going. To. Mm -hmm. So we used to get debt at two to 3%, even for commercial. Yep. And now the debts are going all the way to six, seven, 8%, depending upon what your property is like and what the risk profile is there. And also the loan to value ratio is coming down, mm -hmm. right? You, you could have put about 80% leverage before and that doesn't, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just kind of giving, painting a picture of what's happening in the market. And now those LTVs are coming down to some, some cases to 50%, Yep, which is good because yep. that, actually, that actually reduces the risk. And we can talk about that uh, a lot more of why that's true, but there's no plan. There's no certainty on the debt markets right now, at least four or five years ago, or maybe up until one year ago, people had a perspective of where the debt market's going to look like, right? Right now, nobody, people are afraid of making a projection forward. Right. So what we're trying to do, then the second component of that is what happens to the demand? What happens to the employment cycle? These are the two major factors that I'm looking into when I'm, when I'm looking at my acquisitions in the future. So what we're trying to figure out is that when we unwrite the deals now is what, how can we control the debt? Which essentially means is how can we get a fixed loan? And yeah. still makes sense. Still, the numbers make sense because if if everything works out for good and the interest rates go down to three, four, five, whatever percentage, and ours was six, seven, we could always refi, right? Mm -hmm. But so we can always go take advantage of a lower rate. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to expose our investors and ourselves to a point where we bought it for something at five or six percent, but the interest rate jumps to eight or nine percent. Because that's not the control we have. Even though we wouldn't want it, yeah. we can't influence that, right? So we're trying to say, what variables can we control? We can control the debt by applying a debt, which is a fixed interest rate. That's one. Second, what we're trying to do is, how can we reduce the leverage on the property? Uh, now, when we reduce the leverage on the property, there's a flip side that the cash on cash goes down. Right? Because mm -hmm. leverage leverage helps you bring your cash, cash flow up. Cash on cash up. Because... Uh, higher the leverage, the cash on cash works better because you're making more money on a lesser cash uh, invested amount, right? Yeah. So, but the equity multiple may not change that much because you're still making you're making the payments down to basically recoup the benefit at the tail end of it, right? It's more of uh, educating the uh, investors as well yeah. because they've been used to seeing eight, ten, eleven percent cash on cash, and now all of a sudden we're talking about six to eight percent. So we have to we have to we have to paint a picture for them mm -hmm. that that because we're in a day to day we can't expect them to understand the market uh, dynamics right that's yep. another thing we're doing looking at putting a low leverage and then essentially what we're looking at is how do we control the demand side of it? what can happen is in the future in the near future the unemployment what what's what's going to happen is with the inflation being so high and it's not a it's not a, a hidden fact anymore and we had I think in the closer circles we all were talking about it. 
but now it's more apparent the only way to reduce uh, inflation or not the, the the biggest lever to reduce inflation is demand control the demand mm-hmm. and how do you control the demand by essentially increasing the unemployment so by force or by not force we i personally project that there's going to be an unemployment havoc that we uh, that this country is going to face right so now we talk about okay if, if that happens if that's true and i don't have a crystal ball i'm not saying it will happen i'm saying the likelihood of that happening uh, from my macro lens is pretty high and if that happens what are we going to do on our assets we're basically looking at let's test test the hell out of this asset of what's the minimum occupancy do we need mm-hmm. to make sure that we can float the debt right? mm-hmm. because what's going what's the biggest risk when the property is weak what's the biggest risk in any real estate transaction is especially with the debt on it is that you may bank may take away the property form you may have to foreclose yeah. the property right that's the biggest risk um market downturns will happen as long as you can survive the business cycle you'll be fine at the end right because it's going whatever goes down also goes up right so we're saying is okay uh can we sustain the property at about 60% occupancy with a minimal amount of rental growth? Right? Mm-hmm. We're not talking about, you know, the Arizona market used to be 21% rental growth. We're not, we're not, right. we're not building any of that projection. And if we never did, and we never will, we're talking about in a market three to four ish percent. Does that make sense? And if it doesn't make sense, we'll even knock that down. Yeah. Um, and after all these things, if it makes sense, now what we have done for the investors is and for ourselves is we have taken control of the variables that are not in our control. And by doing that, inherently, we have reduced the risk for the investors. Yeah. Right? And yeah. we're also now looking at a fixed rate. So you're, ca- you're covered there. So your, your uh, expenses are predominantly determined already. It's not going to fluctuate by much. There's still variable expenses, which is fine, but not by a huge amount. Your, um, your risk for foreclosure has been capped because... A property going, even in, even in 2008 timeframes, none of the properties were below 20%, on an average, about 20% vacancy at the mass, right? Right. So we're talking about 40% stress test. So we're basically double the occupant, double the vacancy rate. Yeah. So that's perfect. So likelihood of that happening, fairly low. It can happen. We can, we have some cushion to build in to sort of sustain that. And then we're always looking at making sure that we're buying in the markets that have potential growth. Now, mm-hmm you know, the trend of moving, everyone moving to Southeast, South, Southern Belt <clears throat> is not changing anytime soon. So there's right. definitely going to be a population explosion there, maybe at a slower rate than 2020 or 21, uh, but it's still going to be there, especially with work from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right? People are moving to the warmer, warmer climates. Yeah. So right. with that macro, with all of this package together, we're now starting to look at, okay, how can we, how can we underwrite a deal? Which is going to check all those bo- all those boxes. To answer your question is, where am I looking? I'm actually looking at everything in Southern Bells. Um, okay. Which markets I'm looking? We're trying to focus on primary and secondary markets. We're trying to avoid the tertiary markets, which essentially means primary markets is going to be a major MSA, and then you keep expanding the circle, it becomes secondary, and then you keep expanding more, it becomes tertiary. Sure. Uh, I've been asked the question, what's the radius of the circle or diameter? And I'm like, that's it's not really. That's scientific. That five five mile out of primary becomes secondary. It's sort of a you have to understand the market to understand where the primary, secondary, and tertiary are. Sure. For that MSA, right? So we're looking at those markets. We're looking at assets that cash flow. We're trying to figure out where where can we buy where the numbers make sense. And right now, where the market is 
we're underwriting over 10 to 12 deals a day. Um, and we're still not finding the right deals. Yeah. So we have slowed down our acquisition and making sure that it makes sense. We're never being a company where we're acquired to just check the box that we have acquired. Yeah. That's not the goal for our company. Our company's goal is to make sure that we can make the returns to our investors in the best possible way we can. Gotcha. So you feel this, the demographic shift to the Southeast still stays strong. You're going after think demand so. down there and you're looking at markets. Now, do you have a cash on cash expectation that you're yeah, looking we try for? To is hit, there something we try to rate about six to 8%. Yeah. I think it's becoming more and more closer to six on yeah. an average, right? Um, some assets are going to flow, give you higher cash on cash up front. Some are not depending upon is it a value add versus a class A and all that stuff, right? So yeah. we have to account for all of that. Now we're also looking at class A at this point um, because we don't know where the construction costs are going to be um, mm -hmm. in the future. So we're also trying to hedge our bets on to that and then does class A make sense, especially with the cap rates of A, B, and C being so close. Um, in at least in the markets that we're in, we're trying to say the cash, yeah. will that make a lot more sense? And what are you hearing from investors and feedback on you know, you, the shift to class A, for example, something where, you know, folks are used to value ideals and you're saying, no, actually we should focus on something newer, nicer. You know, what is that explanation to the investors and how are investors responding to that? Yes. Yeah, so I think, um, I think it's more about, we have, the way I have that conversation is really about the risks for both the assets, right? Because while we understand BC, people like you and I can, we understand a, B, C, D, whatever these asset classes, what the risks are and where the rewards are. I think what I do is I basically lay it out for them. And it's a lot of education because, you know, you have to remember it. We have trained them to like B and C yeah. uh, because of the conversations we've had, because of our belief system, our thesis. What we're not saying is, I want to be clear, we're not saying is B and C are bad. What we're saying is as compared to B and C, does A make sense in depending upon how we acquire B. Mm -hmm. right? In some cases, A may not make sense at all. B and C may make more sense, right? So it's now really me, more about the risk reward. Yeah, let me ask you, when you're, when you're evaluating A or looking for A properties, mm -hmm. how is your, I guess, how is your evaluation? How is your underwriting? How do, how do the criteria change when you're looking at this is yeah. a good A versus this is a good like BC value add type deal? Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be more today, at least today, the, the criteria is going to be with A is a lot of it's going to be on lost lease, right? Um, so we just acquired a building, 2022 build in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Um, it's a 252 unit. It's a pretty big uh, acquisition. And we're looking at that deal as in, you know, what a developer built it. They're not the best multifamily operators. Mm -hmm. So it is a business. So if you're buying it from a mom and pop, chances are they didn't do well in terms of managing the asset because they were doing it as a part-time mm -hmm. uh, or they were not that sophisticated, right? So in this case, the developer just wanted to sell the building. So there was a lot of lost lease left on the table for us. And on top of it, the uh, the additional income source or the supplemental income, they were not even considering that as part of the package. They were very minimal stuff, right? Of what they had accounted for. Mm -hmm. So we're now looking at those because to us, that's also a value add play, right? Yeah, it seems like there's some value changed. add built in there. Correct. Now, it's a different kind of value add. It's yeah. not a hard labor value add. We're not saying we're going to renovate the entire building or entire yeah. multiple units. What we're saying is our value add in that case is 
that we're going to be bringing our experienced team into it right. and increase the value of the property by increasing the net operating income. Yeah, better it's management. always going to be a value at play. Yeah. It's it's on a risk adjusted basis. Do we want to bet on our experience, which is on, on our control, or do we want to bet on the market uh, prices and supply and demand, which may or may not be in our control? Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, great. Sagat, I appreciate that perspective. I think it's really interesting to hear what you're looking at and how you're changing. I think the shift to A and how A can can serve a purpose. I mean, nothing should ever be a, an absolute no, right? You have to have an open right. mind. You have to alter your strategy based on the environment. I think you, you told us how you're doing that. And like you said, there's st- there can still be components of value add. It's more from an mm-hmm. operational standpoint, though. Right. Right. Increasing rents because rents are lagging the market or finding other income opportunities, which is a great one. So mm-hmm. some unique value there to be added for sure. Well, awesome. Well, let's, I want to move you into our keys to success round. I want to take let's you through it. four I've questions. Been, um, I've been excited. I've been listening to your show a while. I'm like, I want to do that. Yeah, there you I go. Right. Now's your chance. Uh, no pressure, no pressure. The first question is, if you were going to invest in someone else's deal and you could only ask them one question, what is that one question you would ask? What is your worst mistake on a deal that did not work in your favor? And how did you, how did you address it? Yeah, that's a good one. You always learn more from the mistakes. And if somebody comes back and says, we've never made a mistake, I'll never invest. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because it's impossible. If you've been doing this long enough, you've, you've made some mistakes. You've made some mistakes. For sure. I think it's also in the moments of adversity, people's true, people's true colors show up, right? That's right. It's how they dealt with it because uh, mistake is going to happen. It's your your acumen, your business savviness comes across how you handle that adversity. Yeah, that's Uh, absolutely right. And if you're okay being sharing that, Sharing that in a way that's that shows your humility and your openness. Uh, at least I'll have a next conversation. But the mm-hmm. door is going to be very closed if they say that we've never made a mistake. Yeah, right on. And I have heard that answer. <laughs> have you? Interestingly enough, I have. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of interesting. Well, that you know, that's we an easy conversation. We always beat our projections. We have never missed a mark. I'm like um, maybe you only did one deal. Right. Well, um, maybe, right. Maybe. maybe. I mean, that's the next logical It's not like question, they're lying right? they're, but their yeah. perspective is not, they're not well experienced. That's how yeah. it shows. Yeah. No, I think it's a fantastic question. What are you most proud of in your career? Pivoting. I am very, I'm, you know, our backgrounds are pretty similar. I'm a consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to, we're used to pivoting because every client you go to has a very different problem that you want to solve. Right. And you have to wear a very different hat. Uh, to solve two problems at the same time, but compartmentalizing them mm-hmm. and using a very different approach to solve both problems. I think that training has helped me to basically bring the same thing as in, I look at world not from only one lens. I'm always looking at lenses um, that at that time in the world, what's the best lens I can wear, knowing what I know mm-hmm. best, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not afraid of making a mistake because I know that... I'm, most of the decisions are reversible. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not, it's not an analysis paralysis for me. It always is kind of like, let's try this. And if it doesn't work, we can always reverse as long as we're not putting somebody's life in danger. Yeah. Investors, investors money at risk and my own, I'm okay risking my own money to learn something, but I would never do that on investors money. Right. So as long as it's within certain criteria, pivoting is okay. Yeah. Because if you don't pivot, you'll you'll perish. That's right. 
You're right. And I think in real estate, you've got to be able to pivot, right? Because I mean, especially right now, the market is changing. You talked about debt earlier, right? Where, you know, five years ago, everybody used fixed debt. And then three, two, three years ago, everybody used floating debt. And And now everybody uses fixed again. Like it's, you know, you've got to be able to pivot to the right tool and the right strategy. So yeah, I I think think that's that's where that actually what separates the, um, the experience from the novice, right? Mm-hmm. Because in the moments like this, if you don't have an experience or the savviness, what you're going to basically say is that it's too risky. I'm not going in. Right. 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 Exactly. And it is risky. It always has been risky. Yeah. The, the only difference now is in the previous five years or four years, if you made a mistake, the market will correct it for you. Mm-hmm. That's, That's the right. only difference. That's it right. doesn't mean it's less risky. The deal is still the same amount of risk. It's just that you could, your, your mistake could be forgiven. That's right. Now, if you made a mistake, it may show up. Yeah. Right? Your investors will know you made a mistake. That's right. So I think it's a little bit more, that's where if you're, if you have to be more experienced and you have to have the right ecosystem to be able to survive and thrive in this world. That's right. I think that's really well said. Really well said. So what is a book that everybody should read? You know, I'm a firm believer that anything in life that you have to do starts with mindset, right? It's really what they say, 80 to 85% what happens in the brain. Yeah. And only five or 10 or 15% is the mechanics, right? Yeah. So um, I got introduced to this book called Mindset by Carol Dweck, which is, which gives you the terminology. And once you, once you have a name for a certain thing, I have a feeling people are able to relate to things much better. So she, I mean, you may have heard the term fixed mindset and growth mindset. Yeah. Um, Carol is the person who actually coined the terms or at least made it famous if she didn't coin it. And there's, she wrote a whole book around it. I would highly encourage everyone to read it. Of course, there's, you know, other real estate specific book, the purple book that has changed several lives, the yeah. rich dad, poor dad. Uh, those books, I think everyone should read anyways, but first you got to fix what's in here. Um, and then the mechanics will show up. That's That's great. I wholeheartedly believe you. Absolutely. And then last but not least, what is your number one key to success? Network, my ecosystem. Uh, it's kind of like, I've, I think I really firmly believe in um, who, not how. Mm-hmm. Right? But but it took me a while to get there. So before yeah. being an engineer by trade and a high performer, um, I always wanted to do things by myself. And which served its purpose for what I, where I wanted to go. But since I've changed my approach on who, not how, I've actually been able to see the leverage that I've created in my own life. Mm-hmm. And most of the problems I have to f- figure out now, it's really a phone call away. I know who to call for most of the stuff that I would need help with. Yeah. Um, right. I have a mindset coach. I have a health coach. I have a real estate coach. I have a mastermind. So I, I've created a supportive ecosystem around me, which I know if I have a problem and if I ask them, they may not know the answer. But through some degrees of separation, we will know somebody who has either a perspective on how to solve the problem or who has already solved the same problem. So it shortens the curve for me. And I'm, I'm right now all about compressing the timelines mm-hmm. through partnerships, through ecosystem, through leveraging other people. And I'm okay with being the stupidest person in the room because I think that's the best room to begin with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that can be hard, right? That can be hard. It is time. hard. Um, suck that ego down and, and, and be willing to be humble. And, but you're right. That's exactly the room you want to be in. You want to be in that room because if you're in this modest room, um, 
you want to change the room. So I do that all the time, right? So I would yeah. go into a room where people who are more accomplished than me, smarter than me, and within one year, I figure out I've, I've, I'm speaking the same language, I'm speaking the same thinking, yeah. I need to change the room. Yeah. Because I need to find a room that's even smarter than the previous one, or they're smarter in a different way yeah. than the previous room, right? So always the growth, the growth is the key. That's great. That's great. Well, Socket, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all your wisdom with the group. If folks want to learn more about you and Impact Wealth Builders and what you're doing, mm -hmm. how can they reach you? Yeah, definitely. So I think impactwealthbuilders.com, that's my website. Um, you can join our investor club. And through that, you'll be able to schedule a call with me. I do the first wealth building strategy call as a complimentary call uh, because I really love learning people's journey and see where I can help them. I also have my own podcast, which got last launched last week. Yay. Nice. Um, it's called Migrate to Wealth, uh, where you can always listen in our perspectives. We bring guests like Ken yourself, where we're basically sharing perspectives and more importantly, mistakes. Um, and the life's inspiration. So somebody can, if, if that sparks anybody's inspiration, um, you can all just tune in there to find me there as well. Awesome. We'll make sure all that's listed below. Socket, thank you once again and have a great rest of the day. Perfect. Thank you, Ken, again for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.